Welcome to Line of Credit, a podcast by Merrick's Capital, where we bring you insights from across the private credit space in agriculture, commercial real estate, infrastructure and more. Your host is Adrian Redlick, Executive Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Merrick's Capital. Our guest this week is Nick Brown, Founder and Director at ICON and member of the Merrick's Capital Commercial Real Estate Advisory Committee. Welcome everyone to Merrick's Capital's second edition of Line of Credit. Um, today I'm excited to have Nick Brown as my guest. Nick is one of our credit committee members and been a advi- long-standing advisory board member for quite a period of time at Merrick's. Nick was the founder of Icon Constructions, which was sold to a big Japanese behemoth, Kojima, um, and has retired from Icon in, in recent years. And we've had the privilege of having Nick's advice over the last few years, um, particularly as it relates to a lot of our construction funding and real estate in general. So welcome, Nick. Thanks for your time today. Thanks very much for that introduction. I appreciate it, Adrian. So, Nick, maybe just to, uh, to spend a couple of minutes, just give us the listeners a, a bit of your history, what you've done over the journey the last 30 years. Okay, so um, obviously left high school and I, uh, I went to university at RMIT and did construction management. So that was a fantastic degree, involved business and some structural engineering and construction. And I went out and got a job with uh, a group called Fletcher's for a couple of years down at Southgate. Cut my teeth as a graduate there. Then I went to went to a guy called Ted Yankin, Yankin Project Services, which um, folded into ProBuild. And then I left to start my own business. Started my own business with a partner called Ashley Murdoch. Very meagre beginnings in the back of our uh, our accountant's office with a couple of doors in between filing cabinets. And our first employer was a, as a girl called Tracy Mead, who is currently still with the business. So we started a construction business and later branched into a development and construction business. From humble beginnings, when I sold to Kojima, we were turning over just close to a billion dollars. Uh, we're in four states now. I think the business is turning over $1.5 billion. When I left, we were in New Zealand, every state in Victoria except for South Australia and including New Zealand. It's certainly been an exciting journey and to, to watch you from the sidelines has been a, uh, an incredible one. And so we certainly get the you know the benefit of your trials and tribulations when you know, we, we talk about our loans and the, the opportunities we're looking at. Um, so it's a, a really interesting time to be talking to a builder, um, even... You're one that's a, a retired builder. I know you've got your, your fingers in, in different pies, but over the last two years, we've seen uh, you know, incredible turmoil in the world and lots of industries have faced it, but construction in particular is sort of seeing the, t- you know, the tail end of some of those trials and tribulations where they be logistics issues, COVID, and you know, what seems to be rising you know, cost escalation, labour shortages, etc. And so... Yeah, I think it's no secret that there's a number of builders under pressure and, and dealing with that environment. Do you see some of the, let's jump into, I guess, the, the topic of the day. Do you see some of these defaults by builders and some that are going bust? Do you see them as isolated incidents or do you see it as a risk to the industry? Oh, look, I, I, I've never, in 26 years in the industry, I've never seen so many headwinds for a builder. I mean, if you just look at the elements that are involved in a construction project. So um, you've got most of the contracts are fixed price contracts. So the majority of, of costs are obviously labour and materials. I haven't seen an increase in 
uh, my career of the magnitude that I've seen recently, I would have said if you were, I don't have the stats in front of me, but anecdotally talking to everybody, labor's probably gone up by 10% and materials in the order of 25% in the last year. To give you a, a bit of perspective on that, we would have normally allowed for labor to go up between 4 to 5% every year and we would allow materials to go up between 3 to 5% every year. So this is an absolute quantum leap. What, what is increasing the costs? There's a lot of things. There's um, there's a regulatory influence on, on the building industry. There's obviously increases in insurance. There's project-backed accounts now where the cash flow of the builders is now in accounts, which I, I do think is a good thing. I can talk about that later. There's the the disruption as a result of the and regulatory changes as a result of Luca bond. There's an energy transition going in through the whole economy, obviously, as to get to this net zero, which is increasing costs. I mean, steel, concrete, aluminium, these are very intensive energy consuming products and they're major major products in construction. There's an increase in commodities. So all of that is increased the cost substantially. When we look at the supply side, obviously uh, COVID, has restricted the supply of, we're a global village. We're not only an interstate village, which was um, to get materials, you know, some some materials in the building industry and products we require that are built interstate, we require transport. That was obviously difficult. And we had shutdowns during COVID. The cost of transport has been difficult. I think it's been very well documented about the increase in timber, steel, and, and recently plasterboard. Supply is also very influenced by the Australian dollar. Obviously, we get close to 25% of our products from offshore. So therefore, uh, the Australian dollar has a great influence on it. Labor, well, productivity is uh, obviously was restricted by COVID. It also restricted the pool of labor. We use a lot of international. I mean, a lot of, so for instance, carpenters and formwork carpenters from Ireland. That's just to pick one example. A lot of them have gone home. That's restricted the labour because of it. no immigration. No one can come back. We haven't trained probably enough through our TAFE system over the last 10 years. So there's a shortage in the labour pool. And I think that's in every, absolutely every industry. And then you've got logistics. You've got shipping costs. Um, you know, obviously diesel and and everything, ship transport costs. But a lot of our stuff, as I said, comes from offshore. And you've got an, a forty foot container. And we used to bring in a lot of windows and a lot of joinery from offshore. A forty foot container, and this is a, a cost that's increased in sort of eighteen months. It used to be two thousand three hundred dollars for us, and now today it's about ten thousand dollars. And I was reading an article this morning that Bunker Oil, which is the major uh, diesel uh, and the major fuel they use in shipping is just going to increase and also that the European Union are going to bring shipping into their um, emissions trading platform. So I can't see that coming down in the short-term future and also COVID restricting um, shipping. And then I read another article that uh, uh, something like 20% of uh, senior ship crews in the world are both Russian and Ukrainian. So I think we've got the perfect storm. And to top that, I think the insolvency, the, the perfect storm I talk about is the second thing is timing in the industry is very in, interesting. Um, uh, traditionally, as a builder and subcontractors are exactly the same, you make 70% of your income in the second half of the year because the first half of the year, you've paid for your Christmas or your wages for your workers on Christmas break. You have a short 
um, January, then you you get paid 30 days after you have a short January. So you're paying for wages for February before you get the January. And then you hit Easter. We used to make 70% of our income on the second half of the year. So you've got that coupled with this climatic event which we've just had in Queensland and Sydney. I can't see a more perfect storm. The other thing that I, I, I think that is, is going to be very interesting, and this is the trend, people say to me, is the price going to fall? I haven't got a crystal fall. I'm not great at macroeconomic and I'm not a geopolitical expert, but there's always been this chat, this thing in, in, in Australia about this infrastructure boom. And it was predicted to be about 18 months ago when the peak of it was on. And obviously it's all been delayed, COVID, government, a lot of it is government work and it often gets delayed. I, I can see now with the actual projects in progress in both Brisbane, Sydney, and in particular Melbourne, that there is going to be a huge rush on labour and, 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 and supply. I'll give you a quick example. A steel fixer in Sydney in one of my, fac- in one of my factories that makes precast would be paid $60 an hour or $55 an hour. They're, they're now being offered a premium to go up to the Snowy Hydro. And that is going to happen. There's the East Link, there's the Metro Tunnels, there's the, there's the railway to the airport. These are all very, very, very large projects. So, Nick... You've, you've given the scenario there where costs are rising dramatically and it's clearly a headwind and there's, there's pressures, but you're also talking about an economy that's in, in many ways booming in terms of the building economy. It's yeah. really active. And so for a lot of people out there, they look at activity and we, as a lender, obviously we, we gauge that. You know, we're seeing a lot of activity that's really kicked into gear in the first quarter here, lots of demand for debt and to fund development which had been a little quieter for a number of years. Um, And so we've seen that demand. So we've got on one hand, lots of demand and lots of opportunity. There's lots of capital out there to invest and to to do things. And then the other hand, rising costs and escalating costs, which is a problem. So how how does a builder manage that? Do they just simply put up their costs? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. But, you know, like uh, I think there's a natural equilibrium. It's a marketplace, isn't it? So as costs increase... There'll be projects that um, fall away to the side because of cost pressures, right? Uh, because of the type of contracts that are negotiated between governments, more of a partnering agreement. So, therefore, if there's increase in cost, the government will accept it as a client. You've got to understand in the housing industry, which I, I'm not a part of, which is the larger part of the industry, but also in the commercial side of the industry where I am, we sign fixed price contracts. We take risk for weather. We take risk for supply of labour and materials. The fixed price element is the reason we've had these insolvencies recently. It's referred to as by a lot of people as the profitless boom. Okay, there's a huge amount of work out there. There's demand beyond description. But the thing, the nature of this fixed price contract, if I sign today and it's a two-year contract, now the reason we're finding problems, a lot of people are finding problems now, and I've I truly believe there'll be more insolvencies coming and uh, that's easy to track by then the the time it takes creditors to be paid in the industry, that there'll be more, well, there will be more insolvencies coming. But if you understand, if a lot of the people now, the result of the insolvencies is, or the problems at the moment in the industry is the fact that the fixed price contracts were signed before a pandemic. No one had heard of COVID. 
who would have factored into their into their contract price the fact that we would have had shutdowns and slowdowns and increases in commodities like we've had we've had a wild swing in on the supply and labour side that really couldn't have been predicted. People now are readjusting. Today, they'll take those risks into account. And I think there's always this risk that people overcompensate. You know, once they've gone through a really poor period, then they say, oh my God, it's going to increase by 10% the supply side or the cost side next year, I've got to allow for it. And I think it's a natural a natural market that um, the more that the prices increase, the, there will definitely be a slowdown. So are we almost through that time frame? Is it just is it just an adjustment, an equilibrium, as you say, those that signed contracts going into COVID or early on in the, the pandemic are really having to deal with a tough time. They've got to get through that. And then the construction industry is actually much better protected. Their risk management around lots of things is is much better as we head into the next few years? Or is that, do they not have the pricing power? Because it's always supply demand that dictates whether you can pass on that risk and price. If I was still in my position as the MD of Icon and groups were coming to me to say, oh, I've, got a, I've got a project in WA that's 100 million or a project in the Gold Coast of Brisbane that's 200 million, I'd be extremely cautious at the moment because of the lack of labor and the la- and the amount of activity there it doesn't matter how much you allow quite often you can get caught because the the biggest risk really going forward is going to be insolvency you remember as a builder we represent 15% of the price our management and our margin 85% of the work is done by external parties that's the way we contract right we don't self perform so what's really happened is there's some big insolvencies on these builders at the moment However, that's going to translate to subcontractors already from ProBuild. There's a window contractor and there's talk about some plasters, some joinery contractors going, you know, Condev will have another flow through the industry and I'm sure there's a few more to come. However, there is still a huge volume of work, like you said. So there is opportunity if the industry can absorb the price. Do I think the uncertainty has has stopped? No, I mean, you know, I just want to take the the last four months. Let's just look at reflection. We've had COVID easing. Everybody's saying, yes, we're back to normal. When you look at the logistics of a building site and you were restricted in Victoria to 25% of your work site or four people on site, and you look at the logistics of a high rise where you've got to get in a lift and you normally have 25 people in a lift to get them to a floor, so they're working 30 floors in the air, and now you're talking about a lift with four people in, you're talking about a productivity slowdown, not only a labour shortage, but a productivity slowdown. We got over that, the restrictions are lifted, and then we have a climatic event, and then we have the Ukraine war. So I don't think at the moment, if I was sitting in the chair of of my old position, as one of the largest building companies in Australia, that I'd be feeling comfortable about the cost I'd be comfortable about the amount of work because everybody's at, at full capacity, but I'd be really worried about profitability and, and risk assessment going forward, risk management. So let, let's talk a little bit about risk as a, a lender and how that, the, the comments you made translate into investing into debt. And yeah, this is where you and, and our team at DeBuilt you know, Danny Berger and Paul Abrahams and their team play a, a, a critical part. When we look at loans and we talk about lending at an average of 59% loan to value, 
on construction loans or you know, on what is going to be a finished building, clearly we're making the assumption we're going to end up with a finished building, right? These loans are relatively conservative on the basis that we end up with an office building, an apartment building, a factory, or whatever the end product may be. And often with pre-sales, it de-risks it further. We, we've experienced at Merrick's two builder defaults over the last decade. The first one, um, prior to your actually your involvement with us on the even advisory board and certainly but prior to credit committee, we called on you and, and you helped us finish a building in, in Blackburn going back some five years ago. And you know, one of the things that we learned through the journey, and it was, I guess, pretty critical having people like Danny Berger, there's an you know, architect and Paul to build, having been through this, the quality control processes, step us through what it takes and how a lender has to protect themselves and, and some of the things that we do if a build, you know, to prepare for a builder going bankrupt. Because ultimately we need, we might have a loan at 60% loan to value, but how much should we anticipate we need to spend to finish a building and what are the key things that maybe we do that maybe other smaller credit funds can't do to protect against those bankruptcies and defaults to step into a building well yeah look having gone through your credit process i realize how active it is and danny and paul are very active and understand the industry and also having myself there i think that um if you look at the tier ones now builders now in australia most of them are internationally owned and well capitalized. So the tier one market, your multiplex, your icon, your CBB, your lend lease, they're all very well capitalized. They all report to the stock market quarterly. So you have an understanding of um, the balance sheet behind them. Track record's very, very important. You know, there are a lot of really good tier two, tier three, tier four companies that have been around for a long time and have had a, a particularly good track record. You look at where the industry is at the moment. It's very, I mean, we are such a diverse thing. Where is Perth at the moment? They're going through huge escalation. Where is New Zealand at the moment? They're going through a labor shortage. So, you you know, we, we look at the different markets, we look at the people, we look at the people behind it. Understanding the market is really important, but understanding the people behind it. I think, I think the importance of monthly reporting is very, very important to understand where the project is. And I know that that's very strict at Merrick's. Having the levers there to step in, understanding, uh, you know, like cash flow, the building industry is traditionally cash flow positive. A large builder, small builder, medium builder would always be about a month ahead on cash flow uh, for their monthly turnover. So if they turn over $2 million a month, they would normally be $2 million ahead in, in forward billings or work in advance whip. That's traditionally been cash flow positive in the building industry. There's some regulations that have come in now that I think will help the industry. It's going to increase the cost slightly, which is project bank accounts. Um, so the project bank accounts have been bought in Queensland. Also, Queensland Regulatory Authority has bought in a net tangible assets of every builder and subcontractor in the, in, in the industry. So project bank accounts mean that all the money from the client goes into a project bank account and it gets paid out to the subcontractor so that if there is an insolvency, the subcontractors get paid out of that project bank account. The builder gets his percentage, but so do all the subcontractors and all, all the retentions are kept in that. They're talking about bringing that in in New South Wales now. This also will stretch a lot of people who had cash flow issues going forward. So it probably will bring in a few more insolvencies, but in the long run, it will probably protect the industry. I think licensing has been very important. I think, you know, 
access the balance sheets and your analysis of, of their w- coming forward workload and how much they are and what they're doing is extremely important. I think it's very important that, that, that the, monthly, the, the monthly reporting is very, very, very stringent. And I know you guys go through it. Maybe just focusing a little bit on individual construction sites when, when a builder goes bust what is required and and so the difference between monitoring quality control and certifications versus not monitoring it and just relying on legal documentation so it's important uh products like visibuild um Aconex, ones that that have all the document control so that you can have an ability to take over the document control and understand where a project's at that's very 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 important so the difficulties with taking over a project are warranties so it's self-certification. Most of the contracts are design and construct. So therefore, all the design elements and then engineering elements and the construction is a responsibility of the builder. The services trades are self-certified. So that at the end of the project, they have to give you the certification certificate to say the plumbing is in accordance with the plumbing code, the electricals in accordance with it. So therefore, you've got a certain amount of trades, which is mech, elect, fire and plumbing, or sprinklers, as you call fire, and plumbing, which require you to have continuity in order to get a certificate of occupancy at the end of the project. There's a lot of others like plasterboard and stuff, but you can self-certify them. So the issue is that subcontractors have an element because of their design element and also the consultants. So you have to maintain the consultants. You have to maintain all the design and construct um, subcontractors. And therefore, there's this tension about how much they should be paid for the for the disruption to their profit, how much they're actually owed. So I think having having a builder which has got a, a great information packages like Visibuild, which does quality control and takes photos of every element, uh, Aconex, which has document control of where all the design documents are and everything, or Procore or something like that, or project, uh, some of the uh, cost accounting systems. If you've got the ability to get into them, then you can unpick a project. I'm not saying it's easy. You do also an incoming builder. You've got to get an incoming builder. They're not going to, they're going to find it very difficult to take risk on elements that are already built. So it depends where you are in the project. If you're right near the completion, the warranty is really the major issue going forward. You can, by re-engaging all the some contractors and getting an insurance appropriate insurance policy, get all those warranties in place for your purchaser. But for you as a, a funder, once you get a certificate of completion and there's settlement, uh, the ongoing liability is, is not yours. As a result, that's the end purchaser or the you know, consumer. And they've got, there's a whole lot of consumer protections in both domestic building, there's a Domestic Warranties Act and, and domestic warranty insurance, and there's a series of insurances in commercial. It's not an easy process. No, it's not an easy process, but the experience where we've seen two, you know, two builders go bust on projects over the last decade, I think the cost escalation has ended up being somewhere between 10 and 20% to finish the job overall a construction contract so you know construction contract is going to be 20 percent higher and often construction contracts are somewhere between 40 and 60 percent of the overall value of a of a end product so you may see an escalation if it's 10 percent, it might be six percent of your overall value increase if it's 20 it's 12 percent impact and so for us obviously at 60 percent loan to value even 65 
we've got lots of coverage. But the critical point to really highlight to people is that unless you have the certifications along the way and being quite anal about that along each monthly reporting, then you may never get the certification. So it's not a question of cost. It's a question of actually making sure you get things certified along the way, particularly from subcontractors. So those monthly reports where they have to report against design, people used to report about how's the construction going. The design element in, in an issue like this is extremely important. What building permits have been issued? What certifications from all the subcontractors? And I know they're in the monthly reports and they're extremely important. You can pick up a building and start building it again. I mean, it's Lego right, for big kids. It's the regulatory things that are required to keep things going. And so you've hit the nail on the head. I've taken over seven, I think, ranging from 150 million from the government, from Sennelias down to Blackburn, which was, I think, was six or seven million dollars remaining. And they've definitely, uh, there's a six to 12 week delay to get them commenced again. So time is against it. And the second thing is there's a 15% premium in costs because of the delay and you know the additional costs and what's required so yeah yeah i think um being conscious on the process making sure you monitor the process it's not just signing the loan and it's not just hoping for the end it's a monthly monitoring well it's all a bit bleak what we're talking about you know, <laughs> stepping in and, and difficult environment but look as as lenders and You've had to put that hat on you know, to be more about risk management and, and protecting investor wealth and, and also, quite frankly, protecting developers. You know, a lot of the work we do protects our borrowers because many of them you know, are doing one or two developments, whereas obviously we're lending. You know, we at any one time might have 50 loans on foot and, and a lot of the software and, and certifications that you're talking about is really a big positive evolution in the industry. I um, mean, it's a big change from you know, even compared to five, Absolutely. 10 years ago. Yeah, so the yeah. ability, the industry is actually in a much better place to deal with these things and to step in and take them on. But I think, you know, it's in summary, it's sort of you're saying 15% cost escalation on your construction contract and a 12-week delay for your average. Yep. Everybody's in denial at the start and then the reality hits and, yeah, it always ends up at a fairly similar place, a 6 to 12-week delay and a... Um, and a 15% increase in overall cost. And that's just the reality, you know, that's what we have to deal with. And, and for us as a, a funder, we always need to make sure we've got excess capital to get the building finished. Yeah, you know, ultimately we may believe we're going into something at a 60% loan to value, but we may end up at 70% because we may have to fund that extra piece to get it through if the sponsor doesn't have the wherewithal. And, and look, sometimes it, it can be a good return because we're charging extra interest for the privilege, but we need to make sure we've got the headroom. As you know, that's why we have our credit default swaps and insurance in the portfolio, that if the economy has a meltdown, we have a lot of extra cash coming through from our insurance portfolio to to fund things like defaults and, and problematic builders. I, I, I almost want to say yeah, there's been a bit of a negativity about the construction industry. And as I said, started off, I've never seen more sort of turmoil in the last 26 years. There's been rises and peaks, but I do want to say that the industry is extremely productive on a world comparison, you know, like uh, large reinforced concrete buildings and housing, both from a time and quality perspective, um, the Australian industry is very well regulated and um, highly productive. When you're putting up multi-storey buildings at um, five-day cycles, that's that's world-leading, you know, when you look at the industries around the world. So we are a very productive industry. We are very regulated. 
but at the moment, unfortunately, we live in a global village and, and the global village is causing us a few problems. Putting, putting my macro hat on as a, as a fund manager, I'm probably a bit more optimistic for the building companies. I've heard nothing but pain for the last year or two where I think going into COVID, a lot of builders bid at close to zero margin to win business, to keep their workforce going. Absolutely. No one's doing that now because they're very busy. They're working hands busy. So I'm actually more optimistic their new work in hand is actually much more profitable, albeit I, I hear risky, but it's, as you say, you tend to get the counterbalance where probably pricing in too much risk and adding a little bit too much margin. The challenge for us is actually going to be do new projects stack up because the bill cost is going to come in 10, 15% higher than expected. Well, I think there's um, there's going to have to be, um, I, well, I know talking to all the part, uh, people in the industry, there's going to be a bit of a change in, in, in the way building is done rather than a tendering process. It's going to have to be a partnering process. And a partnering process makes sure that your builder, rather than a four-week tender, hoping that they have missed something and to get the cheapest price, um, um, rather they they spend more time concentrating on how to improve efficiencies, value management, and 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 partnering with subcontractors. I think the government's led the charge with that, particularly Department of Defence, and and the infrastructure. And I think that'll change in other built form, both office apartments, build to rent, you know, data centres, everything that seems to be firing at the moment. I think there'll be a change in the way people have an attitude. There'll be more of a partnering approach. And I agree, if people can get through the next three to six months, there will be, uh, people will remember the last two years and there will be sufficient margin on the projects to make sure the builders are healthier going forward. I think maybe changing tact a little, we're very active in New Zealand and Icon has been very active in New Zealand and, and you really led the charge there before you left. Um, it's It's been a great market for us lending there and I know it's been a great market for certain builders that have, have headed to New Zealand to create capacity to, to build because they certainly experienced a property boom and a, a building boom there. Do you see the dynamics in New Zealand as, as similar to Australia or how, how do you compare and contrast? There's some really good elements about the New Zealand building industry. It is, because of the size of it, there's a lot more partnering that I, I referred to before. Um, so like negotiating construction prices, which means it's a lot more orderly. People are, are a lot more organised up front. It's a very good quality industry. It does suffer a little bit more than the Australian industry on the labour constraints and supply there because of the size of the, the market is controlled particularly by a group called Fletcher's who have a lot of the supply side. So the the good thing about the industry is, is coming from an international, if we bought in some technology with formwork, we bought in some goods from offshore and were able to reduce the costs there and, and also made a healthier margin there. The industry is a, there's no industrial agreements in place there as in unions. Um, however, the health and safety is is just as good as Australia. So look, it's a really good building industry. It's in equilibrium at the moment. I found it very good to work over there. I found business a lot easier, very easy to do over there, less red tape. The the, the thing about quality control there is um, the design and construct is a lot of self-regulation in Australia. You get your own building surveyor, whatever. They use the councils a lot more there. So that you have to get everything approved like you used to years ago via the council. It does mean you've got to be 
longer lead times to get the projects up and running, but it does mean there's a lot more a lot more vision on the quality control of buildings. They the only the only other thing quirk about there is that everything has to be built with earthquake capacity, which means high reinforcement and structural steel and and uh, just a knowledge of that. But it's it's definitely a, a good industry, and um, and I really enjoyed working over there. I think there's great opportunities over there. There's a lot to be done. So comparing and contrasting to Australia. One of the things you talked about was the industrial relations piece and you no longer you know, have a, a sort of a fight in that, that game. Obviously, all builders are sort of pushing for productivity and then you know, there's elements of union representation trying to do good things like OH&S. Um, and then you know, many of the builders I've talked to say maybe they push too hard on conditions and wages. But do you think the New Zealand system works well and it protects the worker? Uh, it still does protect the worker. Yeah, yeah they've got minimum wages. Um uh, there's there's two elements there, and and because of the demand for for labour, it's still it's still very well paid labour, and and I think occupational health and safety is of a similar standard. What I have found is that they have a more liberal approach to bringing in uh, immigration for skill shortages. It's a lot easier to get skill shortages sorted out in New Zealand. However. Um, because the industry is a lot smaller, there are, like I said, constraints on the capacity. But, you know, building is a is a daisy chain. You know, one's got to work after the other. It's a very logical. You can't jump one event to come to the other. You can't pour the concrete before you put the steel in. So it's a very, you know, like I said, Lego for big kids. You don't have constraints. Like if we were pouring a big raft slab in New Zealand, well, in Auckland, I can remember... And we would start a pour at four in the morning because the pour was a huge amount of concrete and the trucks had to get back and forth to from, from the depot. So there was no restriction about us starting at four in the morning in the city. Obviously, we had noise restrictions, but, but, but pouring the concrete. I would find that very hard to do here in Australia. So there's, there's a more, more freedom of you being able to organise your workforce. I mean, I'm, I'm saying that's an extreme. You know, you don't do that every day. But that therefore saved us, you know, a day or people working late into the night saved us time and money and um, and got the next activity going quicker. So it is more productive in that sense, but it's not a lot quicker because of the, the constraints on labour. Do, do the workers get rewarded for that extra effort? For getting yeah, absolutely. Up four in the morning? Yeah, no, like it's, it's very similar to Australia. Um, you know, supply and demand works in every industry, doesn't it? In order for them to get electricians over from Australia or get steel fixers in for, or, you know, there's a lot of Puerto Rican uh, form workers, they have to compete against people around the world for wages. So just because there's not those restrictions in, um, written into industrial agreements, there's still a supply and demand. So it's, uh, yeah, I think it's a very stable industry. One of, one of the things you've been active in over 25 years, you and, and Ashley, your previous partner, is not only did you run a construction company, you were quite active in developments and, and real estate yourself. We couldn't sort of let this um, episode go by without getting your view on, on different segments of real estate, what your outlook is for the market. So yeah, how, you, how are you feeling about the residential market, and particularly Icon was known for multi-residential towers, particularly in Melbourne and then Sydney and now throughout Australia and New Zealand. 
how are you feeling about the outlook for the apartment market? Well, hasn't that changed? Since when we started, it was, um, you know, one of the large uh, developers selling out an apartment building in, in 10 weeks. We'd start construction and we'd have 38 client, uh, 380 clients or 200 clients, depending on a, a building. And there was as much as um, the industry was doing very well, the industry perfected it. When we first started all the big towers, now we've got all the systems in place, the subcontractors are in place, the supply chains are in place. It was really, really good. Now it's turning to the single client. Icons, I know, uh, now got four build to rent. So it's turning to a slightly different product. Yes, it is an apartment, but now it's an apartment with a, you know, a better pool, a better concierge, a, you know, a, a, a lounge. So the product is slightly changing to the times. You know, they're looking at co-living student accommodation so it's always very specific it just used to be called apartments the students lived in the apartments the co-living people lived in the apartments and and uh so did the build to rent people so now they're very specific the products it, it, look the build to rent seems to be a lot of institutional money going into it do you think it's a better product is it actually a better built product do they get differentiated product they're trying to get a 10%, what, what I believe, um, having spoken to a few of the operators, they're trying to get a between a 5 and 10% increase in rent to the normal apartments. So they've got to provide a better product. So I'm not saying they're bigger apartments, but they are often well-finished. Have those extra amenities to attract someone. You know, I used to see apartment buildings, if we did a series of apartment buildings, and I won't mention, but, you know, we'd do 300 and then we'd do 400 the, the following three years. We'd see the same tenants moving because they had a new pool, a new gym that upgraded the, you know, the residence lounge or something. Renters are very transient. So you've got to provide for them what they want. You know, people want to study now. Everybody wants to study, you know, because there's home home office. Everybody wants the ability to have a meeting room and a, and a residence lounge and a swimming pool and a gym in their own building. Whereas that wasn't the norm 10 years ago. So... The industry and real estate's changed. I think it's, you know, the demand's there, clearly, with rental vacancies low. The other parts of the industry that I see are really booming, data centres. Data centres are popping up. They're high-value buildings. They're popping up Sydney. You know, the incoming cables, obviously, the uh, submarine cables have come into Sydney and Perth. There's new ones coming into Darwin and Maroochydore in the in, in not near future. I think the Maroochydore one's already in, which has got a proliferation of um, data centres in Sydney, particularly um, in Sydney, they're doing them in multi-storey. Melbourne, they're doing a lot too. Perth, there seems to be a lot over there. So that, that industry seems to be working very well. Student accommodation was huge before, but doesn't seem, obviously, because of the COVID and immigration. I do actually expect that to come back. Uh, retail doesn't seem to be a lot around as much anymore. Hotels had a very good run before COVID. Haven't seen a lot coming across, but I'll tell you what, there is a lot uh, for the building industry. It's a lot of healthcare. Healthcare is huge, uh, both private and public. And is there sectors in particular as an investor that you like? Yeah, I, I, I love the data centre sector. I mean, if you look at the yield per square metre, you look at the longevity, you look at the stickiness of a client. If you put data in there, you don't rip it out, do you? It, it, it's, it's a really good investment. I think it is dominated by publicly listed companies and multinationals. But if you can get a good site, you can get a DA, you can on-sell it. Logistics, obviously, uh, industrial is the hottest thing going around in town. Who would have thought 
my whole adage when I was a developer was it was a nine to 10% yield. And now you see A grade industrial under five in some sectors. And that's just growing day by day. I mean, land prices for industrial is incredible. Um, land subdivisions are still, you know, I'm invested in quite a few land subdivisions. They've been very, very healthy over the last three years. Obviously, government stimu- stimulus. There has been cost growth, but there's also been revenue growth. So I, I still think land subdivisions, industrial data centers and, and built to rent are probably the ones that I'd, I'd stick my money in. It's, a, it's an interesting time. The demand's clearly there for those sectors. But I think as of, uh, as of today, the 10-year the bond in, in Australia is, is currently trading you know, up again. It's around 2.75%. 10-year bond's gone up from one6 to 2.75. And so all real estate backs off, off that. I have an enormous amount of respect for a lot of our borrowers. It's, it's not an easy game to predict where prices are, are going. Certainly a lot easier for us as the, the lender, lending at 60%. We don't really need to worry too much about the vagaries of, of where that's going. I guess our folk, we get the luxury of focusing on where we can provide capital to, to support that growth. And we've certainly seen that transition. You know, a lot less apartment buildings, a lot more office, a lot more uh, logistics, data centres. We obviously get the um, loans which aren't bankable. And so those that are in the hotel space still very active, but um, yeah, it's, it's going to continue to be an interesting time. And with a, a rising 10-year bond yield and rising um, costs, it's going to be an interesting time to see where the, the property market goes. But Nick, I wanted to thank you for your time, but more importantly, thank you for your ongoing effort, playing an integral role in, in our credit process, being the builder who's sort of seen the ups and downs and, and the, you know, the difficulties the industry faces a critical element to making our credit assessment. So thanks for your time today, but more importantly, thanks for your ongoing efforts. No, I appreciate and enjoy it greatly. Thanks, Adrian. Merrick's Capital is an Australian and New Zealand fund manager, delivering a truly differentiated multi-strategy offering with extensive investment capability and global experience spanning multiple asset classes. To learn more about Merrick's Capital and what we do, please head to our website, www.merrickscapital.com.